0: Welcome to episode 18 of Turning the Goldfields Green. In this episode, I have an in-depth interview with a local Castlemaine woman called Kerry Calcraft. After talking to Ben, Jacinta and Rilke last week about protesting the Adani coal mine, I thought it would be a suitably complimentary show to follow up with this interview I recorded several weeks ago. Kerry is a lovely, warm-hearted Castlemaine resident who I have known for a long time, However, I have only recently learned how she spent her 20s defending forests in Western Australia and learning the principles of nonviolent direct action and deep ecology, and then facing some very real situations to test her learning. I have had feedback from a listener in Castlemaine that they miss the recycling segment. I have to admit that all of my segments have fallen to the wayside a little in the past few episodes. Mostly because the conversations I've been having with people have been so good, I can't quite bear to edit them down to fit in a recycle segment. But today, because of that feedback, I'm going to uh, have a little recycling segment at the end of my chat with Kerry. Before we begin, I would, as usual, like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land here in central Victoria, where this show is produced and recorded. So that's the Judge Wurrung people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Salt. Salt. Salt of the earth. Salt. 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 Grassroots. Grasperate. Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth, people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on Saltgrass.podbean.com. Tell me a little bit about your 20s and what was going on.
1: When I was about, I'm not really sure, probably about 22, 23, I grew up in Western Australia and there was this very beautiful part of the southwest of WA that I heard was going to be logged and not only logged but logged for wood chips and those wood chips were to be sent mainly, I think, to Japan to make products like toilet paper. And so... I went down, there was a, a forest blockade being set up down in the southwest. It was near, in between a town called um, Mangemuth and Pemberton, if people know. So beautiful, big uh, carry forests and jarrah trees. very gorgeous area. What was really interesting about this forest blockade camp, I'd never been to anything like this before, but it was set up by uh, a whole lot of activists who had done a lot of work in Blockading prior to this time. And they were absolutely passionate as a group about deep ecology and about nonviolent direct action. And so this forest blockade got set up with these people holding the space, I guess. And anybody who turned up had to go through some training in nonviolent direct action before they were allowed to be part of any direct action going on so any kind of sitting on the edge of logging coops or any interaction with the um, police or with the loggers they had to sort of be versed and as part of this training in non-violent direct action there there was a lot of training in compassion and looking at the really really big picture of what's going on and so
0: what we're trying to achieve
1: what we're trying to achieve in the big picture is it actually just about the forest and clearly it wasn't just about the forest. It wasn't just about the wood chips. It was also about how do we create different structures to live that are, you know, supportive of each other. How, in fact, do we live in community? How do we relate to people and not make it this kind of black and white, you're wrong, you're the enemy, I don't like you, I'm going to damage your, you know, whatever it might be, your machinery or your sense of self or your the way you are in the world or Things that you hold dear to you because that just kind of plays into how we got into the mess in the first place, that kind of dualistic thinking of what's to be taken and what's to be left behind or what's right and what's wrong and, you know, us and them mentality. So,
0: As if there's only two options, there's not a plethora of options in between. Yeah,
1: there's so many options and I think that's something that's a little bit problematic in this culture is often we've fed an either-or situation and really that's not the case. So part of this nonviolent training was training and stepping back and looking at this big picture. Yes, we wanna look after these forests. Uh, we wanna look after this community, you know? We wanna look after the earth. Kinda like this is one little thing that we could do that's part of a bigger illness going on here. And we wanna wanna be part of this big healing.
0: And that fundamentally part of that bigger healing is to step away from that narrative of of only two options like that in itself is part of the healing that you're trying to do isn't
1: it that's a huge part of the healing that kind of greenies versus loggers thing what a sad situation to instantly sort of be put into a place that you're suddenly an enemy of somebody because how did that happen you know yeah it's like actually those people could be part of my family or you know if I'm if I was from Manjamup I would have you know worked in the local shop growing up of course I'm not against any of these people
0: yeah and ultimately like if you look at the motivations of everyone involved you guys are doing it out of love for the earth and love for the natural Mm -hmm. environment and they're doing it out of love for their families because they need an income
1: absolutely and yes and you know what a lot of them were doing it out of of love for they would say the forest they might Mm. not say the earth they might not use that language and I particularly remember one time which nearly brought me to my knees I was This is probably after about a year of being involved in this campaign in the southwest of WA and I went to this logging coop and we met up with a bunch of women. They were wives or family members in the logging community Mm. and these women were on the edge of tears. They could not understand at all how we couldn't see that they had spent their whole lives trying to look after the forest. They were in Agony. They just did not understand why we didn't get it. And it was such an extraordinary moment. And I remember quietly walking away thinking, Have I missed something? Perhaps I don't get it. You know? And I had that moment of thinking, what if I'm wrong? Yeah. And then and then all that kind of training came back. And it was like, well, no one ever said that what we were doing, this so called stopping the forest from being. Felled and turned into woodsheds and sold off for nearly nothing no one said that was the right thing to do but it was but it was more like coming to that place of going well I don't know it doesn't seem like the way to do things and I'm really going to be standing for the tree you know I'm standing mm-hmm. for the trees at the moment and I'm not going to come out of that place of I am right and you are wrong, mm. it's, it was much more subtle and it was such an important moment for me to go really having that experience of somebody coming up with me with all their emotion, put all that training right there into that, mm. into that experience and I went, oh, wow, yes, who knows? Who knows what's right? Who knows what's wrong? And this beautiful woman or group of women in front of me are in pain and who knows? And the forest is in pain too, you know. I really, I really felt that as well.
0: You know? Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about before we get into deep ecology, which was part of your yeah. training. Tell me a bit more about nonviolent direct action. Yeah, so it's
1: a, I guess it's type of um, civil disobedience, and it's a type of resistance. And uh, as far as I know, it came out of that that time when Gandhi was resisting um, the British in India. It's not a, this is, it gets often um, confused as being a passive protest movement. It's actually very, very strong. It's very active, but it really makes an effort to not get into, again, that kind of dichotomy of we are right, you are wrong, or, or more importantly, I hate you, and I'm going to destroy you. It's saying, what is going on here is not okay, and I will not stand for it, and I will not obey the law because I don't agree with what the law's doing and I'm going to do it with love and I'm going to do that with compassion and I'm going to do it with courage and strength and fierceness if need be. But then there's those, of course, there's those edges, aren't there, of uh, is it okay to destroy property, not a human, but, is you know, not injure humans or animals. Is it, is it okay to, you know, stuff up engines in bulldozing you know and a lot of people would say no no destroying of property is absolutely not okay in the realm of nonviolent direct action but some people might argue oh, perhaps it is we were firmly in that camp of no it's not okay we want to come out at the other end as friends with the people that we've been sort of working with or some people might say working against. yeah yeah in terms of a philosophical viewpoint (laughs) so the training would be there's practical aspects to the training of well how do we hold together when we're standing in front of a bunch of workers how do we work with police you know how do we keep ourselves safe and what do we need to look after ourselves how you know, how much danger are we willing to put ourselves into? So there's all those practical trainings, how to abseil up TPs or lock onto equipment and um, the car fear safety. And really the whole point was how do we stop, in, in this case, how do we stop people locking the forest? How do we hold this sort of destruction so that we can buy a little bit more time and perhaps come up with another way that their needs for exporting something to Japan can be met and our needs for protecting this really incredible part of the forest can be met as well. Let's just give a little time and space for dialogue. And I guess also one of the things is that it creates a little bit of media attention because there's so many horrendous things that go completely unnoticed by the media. So I guess that's another reason why people do these things is you try to get the media to see it oh, my goodness, people don't really know that there's old growth forests being logged and wood chips and um, shipped off and nothing for other countries. And so, you know, that's part of it too, to raise
0: awareness. Yeah, absolutely. While we're still there with you in your 20s in Western Australia, how did that all play out? Did you leave before it had finished? Did you keep following it once you had left?
1: Well, it was really um, wonderful news for that little bit of forest got turned into a national park. I mean, th- it was profound because we didn't really put a step wrong with our campaign. It went on for a couple of years. And in the end, by the end of the campaign, there were even when we had some local elections, there even became a political group that was called Liberals for the old growth forest. Really, <laughs> believe it or not, yes. Wow. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and then there was these incredible fundraisers going on in Perth, where you know, sort of high society were having art options to raise money for us folk down there. You know.
0: So the public awareness really worked.
1: It really worked, it, and but not just the public awareness. The public awareness coupled with this absolutely non-wavering commitment to non-violence, and because. We just weren't rude and we were very thoughtful in the way that we spoke and the way that we acted. Another really important thing about nonviolent direct action is it's very open. Mm. So we would have meetings and we would invite anybody who wanted to come to the meeting. So the loggers could come, the police could come. We weren't hiding anything. Mm. It was very, very open to say, you know, you know why we're here. This is what we stand for. This is what we're going to do. We're just going to let you know that in advance, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of nice because again it breaks down those barriers of oh, these people are up to something, they're trying to get us. It's like actually we're not trying to get you at all. We just would like the forest to stay standing. So we're gonna do
0: these things. Amazing. So how long were you down there for? In in the thick of it. Well,
1: I went on and off because I you know, I kept running out of my savings and then I'd come up to Perth and work a bit more and then I'd go down again. <laughs> I'd dip up and down probably over I think eight months at the Giblet camp, I reckon, and then went overseas and then I went back to another camp. You know, it didn't really finish. So Giblet got saved, but then there was another area called Wattle, the Wattle Camp that, you know, these problems sort of sometimes shift around. Mm. So I went down there on and off for a couple of months for bottles and then I left Way. All
0: right, so at the same time as you were learning about nonviolent direct action, you were also learning about deep ecology. Can you tell us a little bit about, about the basic principles of that and what you were learning back then?
1: Yeah, so these same people who set up the uh, the forest blockade down at Giblet, they learnt a lot about nonviolent direct action they learnt a lot about deep ecology and they learnt about deep ecology... Through a really wonderful activist called Joanna Macy, who's in her 90s now, deep ecology has this philosophy that all life is of incredible intrinsic, but has intrinsic value, all life, and it really counteracts this idea that humans are a, the pinnacle of existence and we can use the Earth's resources for our own needs. And it's it's saying, mm, look, at, let's see if we can shift our perspective to look at this. Planet, they might use the term Gaia, this living whole planet. And we are completely enmeshed in this web of life. So we're not separate to it. And it's not about humans saving the environment as though the environment was separate to humans. It's really doing whatever practices you can. And they could be meditative practices and they can be led practices in groups that are, you know, a bit more active about going. How can we remember how deeply we are a part of this planet? We're not separate. And so, therefore, um, saving the planet isn't like this amazing human ende- endeavour so we can save the planet or save the tree so that we can use them for, you know, for our own human uses. It's about allowing all life forms to, to live as much as we can, promoting diversity and promoting life. We don't – we really don't know what's out there we really don't know what's in the soil we really don't know about all these life forms around us as yet it's too premature to and very arrogant to sort of judge about what forest should be chopped down and what forest should be saved and you know there's countless examples of
0: that we don't know it's interesting I think the more we do learn about what's in the soil and how that connects to the insects and the birds and, and that connects to the trees and that connects to the river system and that connects to how the weather moves mm. across the landscape and that connects to you know the amount mm. of krill in Antarctica which connects to the whales the more we do actually mm. learn about it the more it becomes mm. obvious that it's all interconnected but we actually you're right we don't know all of it and so it's still easy to say oh well that won't be missed or that won't you know that won't have big ripples.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, those learnings of interconnectedness are an essential part of deep ecology and partly to shift things for our own mind because I think this trap that we can get into as humans, especially in this kind of capitalist growth society, mm. is that we are separate. We've become, we've become a little bit separate in our lives, perhaps with the housing that we're living in and, you know, the walls and climate-controlled, you know, environments and things like that. We can really miss all these beautiful things going on around us, the subtle changing of the seasons and the bird life and the insect life that arrives in our gardens at different times of the year. And um, there's so much that we can miss. And it would be quite easy to go through your life beginning that you are actually a part of nature. And I I find that a great travesty, really. And Mm. so this deep ecology movement is about deeply remembering, you know, sort of, in that way of putting yourself back together and putting yourself back together is kind of like dissolving into that web of like, yes, I am part of the earth. I'm completely interrelated, interconnected with everything on the earth. It's quite a shift of perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I watched a movie recently called interstellar have you seen it it was no I've never seen it it was a big uh, movie a couple of years ago and i watched it for the first time just the other night and <laughs> it was a really interesting philosophical point because i think it's exactly it's representing exactly what you say deep ecology is not about about what deep ecology is trying to teach us not to do which is see humans as the most important part of anything huh. and the premise was that the earth has so ruined for one reason or another crops are starting to fail and Mm. certain microorganisms are starting to just gradually destroy everything that makes earth livable for us Mm -hmm. and so they they're attempting to go through a giant anomaly a wormhole in space and there's all this time travel stuff and all this sort of like it's a sci-fi movie Mm. But the premise the whole way through is that humanity is absolutely worth saving. We can abandon this dying planet. We must move on. Humanity is the most oh. important thing. Oh. And they also, there is not a single mention of taking, they they take all these human embryos on the ship with them, but they oh. don't mention taking any plant life, animal life.
1: There's no Noah's Ark, is there? <laughs> no,
0: no, they're going to grow all these humans with, like, nothing to eat and and nothing to breathe. Yay! They're trying to find planets where there's oxygen and all the right living conditions oh. and things. But it was just and, – and at several points during the movie, they have these sort of philosophical discussions about, you know, the importance of keeping humanity alive. And, and it is sort of cer- a certain level philosophical kind of movie, mm. but it's also exactly what you're saying – is the opposite of
1: ecology.
0: Yeah. It's entirely about humanity as the apex of creation.
1: Extraordinary, isn't it? And can you yeah. imagine what that life would be like? That's It's incredible to think of a life without, you know, these things that you might take for granted, the wind on your cheek or the sun on your back.
0: Yeah. Mm. And they were growing monocultures. And I'm like, well, that's their first problem. (laughs) They're growing like corn as far as you can see it. And I'm like, well, if they just had a bit of diversity in their farming, they wouldn't have all these blight and all these problems. And so in the end, did did it kind of self-destruct? Well, they ended up saving humanity by taking them off the planet Earth. And then they're just in a space station sort of living until they find another planet to, Oh. yeah. And there's this whole like one woman trapped on a planet with all these embryos (laughs) by herself. I think another point that's embedded in this is this sort of one person as hero rather than people Mm. working together and people working with, Mm. um, the entire mm. ecosystem, like we're not just, it's not just yeah. humanity as the hero or one human as the hero yeah. of humanity. It's such a complex mm. system.
1: Well, that was another great thing that we learned down at the forest blockades is how to give everybody a voice. And we had, you know, those, if anyone's been involved in activist circles, you have these very long meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <where> we're, <laughs> they were very gorgeous. We had a bit of time on our hands anyway, but um, where everybody had their say and... That's a really wonderful thing. So even though I, I might have made it sound like, you know, there was these elders who set up the camp, sure, they sort of guided it, but they were very passionate about and particularly young people having a say. But the other thing that deep ecology does is it gets the non-human forms to have their say. So when you do a practice in deep ecology, if you're doing some experiential work, you might sit in kind of like a, a ritual process and see which non-human aspect wants to speak through you. And I just did this um, the other day. I was on a on a Zoom call, as we are these days, with seventy people from around the world. And <laughs> suddenly we broke into groups, and we're in groups of four. And they said, righty so connect in with something from your non-human world and introduce yourself to your little group, and see what that object or that element or, or that animal would like to share. And it was just magnificent. And so I had these women from America in my group and they were speaking. Both of them were a tree, a different type of tree. There was a white pine and another tree that I hadn't, hadn't heard of before. And they were speaking as though they'd taken on being the tree. And then they were introducing themselves as the tree and spoke about where they were situated and on their part of the earth and then offered advice for the humans during this time what an incredible thing to do i i find like this is one of the most wonderful aspects of deep ecology when you really practice shifting yourself out of your human way of thinking and you that very anthropocentric human-centric way of experiencing the world and start to speak from the point of view of leaf litter that's who I ended up being oh really I was leaf I was leaf litter and you know I've been in other workshops where I've been an ant and wind often speaks in the workshops uh-huh. and you know all there's all these gifts of these elements or these animals that mm. come to speak wow such an extraordinary
0: it's such an amazing way to get us to think um, empathise beyond the human sphere mm. I guess and try and because mm. we have, I mean humans have the most incredible capacity for imagination and um, the ability to see through someone else's eyes mm. and so to apply that to non, I, I guess it could be animals, I generally include mm. animals in sentience but even like leaf mm-hmm. litter and mm. other non sort of sentient things or potentially mm. non-sentient, I don't know who knows what's sentient?
1: Who knows? <laughs> yeah. well, there's some sort of, isn't there? Now we know, as you mentioned before, about the communication that goes on in the soil when when the leaves break down and then you've got those mycelium kind of connections that are going down as the, as the leaves break down and then all those networks that happen through the soil. I mean, yeah, it might not be sentience, but there's communication of sorts, you know, mm. isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And we do have this empathy. This is so important, isn't it, at this time? As humans, we have empathy and it's a muscle that can grow. And I, I feel like these practices in, uh, say, things like deep ecology, where you sort of loosen up your sense of self being, you know, this is my boundary of, of Carrie or of Ali, you know, and I end here and then all around me is nature which is very separate or I'm separate to other humans and I'm separate to, You know, that's such a brightening place to be. So as soon as we start to have empathy or compassion and we feel the pain or, you know, connecting, I think, compassion the Latin roots is to suffer with, so we really connect in with the pain of the earth or the pain of another, then it softens our egoic capsule a little, you know, it allows us to really relate and connect in with "Mm, the pain of this planet or the pain of another. And then, you know, naturally we want to connect in and know more and move towards and do something about that. That that's a, beautiful place to begin
0: really isn't it mm, absolutely can I a little a thought occurred to me while you were speaking and I just want to see if you think it's true <laughs> it may not be mm. but when you do these sort of exercises do you do you think because I mean I think especially at the moment with the coronavirus and a lot of people in isolation and unable to make as much connection with other humans as they'd like to mm. do you think those sort of exercises somehow make you feel more or less lonely in the world Yeah, great question.
1: I feel like the connection that I can deeply rely upon is the connection with myself, my body, and the connection with the earth around me. And that feels like over times of my life where I felt very lonely or had times of being alone, they're connections that I can really rely on. And so humans will come and go and humans are sometimes available and sometimes they're just not available. We all know those times where you really feel like you want to reach out and it just feels like you can't get the people that you need to speak to. I'm not saying at all that human connections I are mean, I vital. I love having human <laughs> It's wonderful. But in terms of ones that you can really rely on, these practices I find are so incredible incredibly grounding because they remind us that we are in this web of life we are connected so we can feel disconnected we can feel isolated but practices like making sure you're going outside every day looking up at the sky feeling your feet on the earth noticing what's around you these are all kind of practices from mindfulness really Mm. it's about feeling in to your body feeling into your breath being breathed, you know, by life. Mm. And so you're taking that breath and you naturally, uh, if, if you're present to it, you can feel into that connection that you have with the earth and what the day brings and what are the smells of the day and what's the feeling on the ground today and mm. all that sort of stuff. Yes, in my sense, it's an it's a incredibly important practice for these times where people are I mean, coronavirus or not, generally people are becoming more isolated. Um, This is a very acute time of isolation now. But even without the coronavirus, that's been a huge
0: problem, hasn't it? Absolutely. So you are starting to make connections between this practice and Buddhism. And I know that you have seen a lot of similarities between the two.
1: Yeah, there's heaps of overlap between deep ecology and Buddhist practice. And And especially, I think when Joanna Macy kind of uses a lot of deep ecology in her work, she's a Buddhist scholar and she finds those practices very helpful too. I think one of the main things is uh, this concept of interdependence or interconnectedness. Other people call it interbeing. Uh, So that's that sense that we are, the world isn't made up of all these separate identities and egos and. beings that have no relationship to each other that we are you know in Buddhist philosophy they wouldn't talk about a web of life but they they use other terms to talk that we're completely interconnected and Mm -hmm. so they use there's so many ways that we can see it from really mundane levels such as we know that we couldn't have our meal our dinner at night without you know, farmers and without transport and therefore without oil and without the sun and without the rain and without, you know, all those sort of factors that come together and then amazing, you you know, you've got gas at your stove, you've got electricity to cook with and mm. the, you, you can't, you, you could just follow one meal and you could be there for hours and hours reflecting <laughs> on this web that has, you know, arrived there and sitting there on your plate, it's absolutely extraordinary and so it doesn't take too long to recognize that's a huge fundamental aspect of buddhism is to recognize our deep interconnectedness with all beings so that you're not sort of running around trying to save yourself it's kind of like well when we become enlightened we all become enlightened together we're all here for each other so that's one aspect of buddhism where there's an incredible overlap with these and the other is as a process in Buddhism, they have this beautiful imagery of two wings of a bird. And these are these qualities that you need on the Buddhist path. And on one, one wing of the bird or on one hand is wisdom. And on the other hand are the methods that you use like compassion. Yeah. So you've got wisdom and compassion as two wings of the bird. And the wisdom is about shifting your way of seeing. So this is almost identical to that deep ecology uh, way of seeing that I had been speaking about previously and that we're not separate to each other. So shifting so that you can see this very, very deep interconnectedness with everyone and with everything, not just humans, everything. And on the same time, the practice of compassion, the, the practice of loving kindness, you know, this beautiful softening and these two need to happen together, a practice of one of those on its own means that you've got a wonky bird, really, and one wing broken.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the bird doesn't glide so you well. You go around in circles.
1: <laughs> you go around in circles. And, we, you know, you can see that um, my Buddhist teacher used to talk about idiot compassion <laughs> and seemed very harsh, but I think we all know about idiot compassion where you think you're being kind but you're actually causing all sorts of problems in your kindness. Maybe you're becoming a doormash or you're just not really the help that you think you're offering isn't really helped, that's wise
0: yeah or you're not really looking at the person who's receiving you're just looking at how good you feel to give it
1: that's true and then of course um all that sort of wisdom can be a bit cold on its own you know if we're just in our books studying about how we're all connected and about how the soil is connected to this and that and how you know everything in the in the world is connected but if that beca- if that remains just an intellectual. Thing and you might publish a paper, but you don't really have that experience of connecting with your next door neighbour's pain.
0: It's cerebral rather than felt.
1: When they're happening together, wow, beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's it's really a head and heart connection, then, isn't it? Like one is isn't it uh, more cerebral, and the other is much more felt. So
1: that's right. That's right. But I right. think the head
0: and heart sort of is another dichotomy that I think people it becomes simplistic when you talk about it in those terms so to talk about it as wisdom and as compassion I think is a really nice way of describing it that yeah lifts it out of that sort of cliche
1: <laughs> yeah and we and we do know of course in all the head stuff there is there's good intentions which is the heart and you know there's always a little mix isn't there and that's right it is good to be careful that we don't fall into those dichotomies that cause so many problems in the first place yeah
0: there is one thing that you mentioned when we were having a conversation about this the other day. You talked about a deep time perspective as well.
1: Yeah, so this is another practice in deep ecology where we can consider the shifts that, you know, what's happening now and this sense of oh everything is so important. Flux right now, particularly with the coronavirus, it's it's brought that really to the fore that we, we just don't know what's happening. Even on a day to day, I know there's been a real pull to check the news because what's happening in the morning might be different <laughs> to what's happening in the afternoon. And and yet, when we look at this really really incredibly huge sense of time, like aren't we constantly in flux? No, that is that's the kind of truth that filters through all of time when you've had civilizations rising and falling you've had animals become extinct and you know there's been so much change you could say some people will say change is a constant i don't not really sure about using that term constant but you could say a hallmark of our experience over deep time is that everything's impermanent you know so once again that's another really important buddhist concept Mm. of impermanence and um and also i feel like where that's important in the practice of direct action or being doing activist work is you still go ahead and stand for something be it the forest or call into account this adani mine construction for example while at the same time just recognising that hum that happens over time where we are in this planet and you can still have that same passion but I find I don't get knocked over so much when I recognise that massive expense of time. But it, it just offers a little bit of perspective so that I don't kind of implode with, <laughs> with the uh, ridiculousness sometimes of it all. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, oh, this doesn't make any sense to me. And at times I can be absolutely furious about what's going on, hmm. but practices that connect me into deep time, I just feel like, ah, oh, all right,
0: we've been through this before. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I find all these practices so helpful. You know, I I need to be reminded all the time of this sort of stuff. You know, it's, it's a beautiful remembering, and to become part of that web, I feel like that that feels like a real life journey to constantly remember my place in this web of life.
0: So is that what you've taken from it? Like how has it impacted your world and do you still practice it consciously?
1: Mm. So it was a huge part of my I sort of came into Buddhism and deep ecology and nonviolent direct action all around the same time. And I guess they all informed each other. I stopped doing more frontline activism about 10 years ago. I had a few really tricky experiences moving away from WA and still being involved in direct action things. I went to Pine Gap in Alice Springs and some stuff in Queensland when I was living at a Buddhist centre there and I realised, wow, these people haven't been trained in the way that we were trained in WA and there was so much hatred and so much violence and some of the behaviour of the people who were sort of so-called standing for what I was standing for was completely the opposite of what I felt was a, you know, dignified and compassionate way to conduct myself. And I I felt very torn of like, well, who am I standing with here? And what's that bigger picture that I believe in? It was a really tricky time. It happened a couple of times where I suddenly realised what we had learnt in WA and the way we had been trained up was just so extraordinary and didn't carry across throughout the activist world. Mm. So, yeah, I remember stepping back from that sort of that direct activism for quite some time and then became a mum and, you know, found myself with less and less time. And I think the practices that I'm really involved with at the moment are those shifting practices in my mind about how do I reconnect with this sense of being part of this very vast web How do I stay connected with the grief of what's happening on this planet with climate change? Mm. How do I do that constructively and how do I use that incredible pain for the world to then transform that into something powerful and beneficial? How can I support the community to work through that process? Mm. So that's where I'm at at the moment is using this sort of framework that Joanna Macy had and she gets people to really connect in, which I think this is such a missing thing, is connecting with the, connect in with the pain of the world. And I, the reason why I find this so important is because I feel like there's so many um, ways that we become numb and shield ourselves from pain and turn off avoid absolutely so many ways i feel like life is set up so that we can buy things and be busy and numb out yeah and then there's this horrendous thing just humming along in the background and it's this incredible amount of destruction very frightening and so reading the news sometimes especially in this sort of swiping 24-hour news cycle i've even found It doesn't sink in. So these practices where we can be held in a safe container, a safe circle, and be allowed to feel into this pain and and the grief we have is really important because once we touch in with that grief and that pain Mm. for our wider sense of self, yeah, our planet, then we can usually what happens when you touch in with that and you really allow yourself to feel it, you you get this energy to move forth, to to see things with new eyes, to see the possibilities that are that are out there and then create more of that in your community. So that's sort of Joanna Macy's work as she takes people through this process so that they don't stay wallowing in pain and despair. Her original work was despair and empowerment work. That was sort of her 80s name for the work that she did. And now she calls it the work that reconnects. And so we can see it this time with what's happening with the coronavirus. There's so much destruction that's going on to our, our social structures. That how much reconnecting is there? It's extraordinary. The stories of reconnection are just incredible yeah. at the moment. Yeah, it is amazing. Mm, So wouldn't it be amazing if we could also have this reconnecting going on? And I'm not just talking about social reconnecting. I'm talking about, you know, reconnecting with the earth around us and reconnecting with the land and reconnecting with our senses so that we have time to stop and feel and notice what's going on. So this deep level of reconnecting, if we could do that without, you know, that enforced coronavirus shutdown to make us slow down, could we... we, (laughs) You know, could we use what's happened in this little bit of time? Could we use this? Because we're going to need these skills for climate change. We're going to need exactly the same skills to go forth in this time and create new ways of relating and create new structures that um, are more localised to survive this next period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the point you made earlier about people being able to sort of stop and hear the birds, it seems like I have just yesterday I read an article about how people in New York are now able to hear birds on streets where they've never been able to hear birds before just because there's no traffic like it's literally a volume or you know yeah. <laughs> it's a volume question right like and just being able to hear the birds makes you stop and look at the trees and suddenly there's a different way of connecting rather than, yeah. you know, making sure you're not about to get hit by a taxi while you're crossing the street.
1: That's right. All these ways of slowing down are really helpful, aren't they? And some, some of us have been forced to slow down at the moment because businesses have been shut down and schools are closed down, for example. But, uh, yeah, once again, I feel like this is such an essential practice for what's required in, in this time of climate change. Yeah.
0: Do you feel inspired to expand upon what you think is needed yeah, as we face climate change and as, as we try and mitigate it and slow it down and all of that stuff?
1: Oh, there are so many things that are needed and I think one of the things that I, I feel is really important, and again, this is a Joanna Macy thing, is, is find your own gifts, find your own strengths because there's going to be these incredible scientists who are doing work on one level and they might come up with certain technologies that might be good for carbon capture and how wonderful. You know, I'm so grateful for them. And then there's going to be other people like gung ho growers who are growing food locally, and you know, people who are setting up the farmers market. We're going to need that too. We're going to need people who are able to have small neighbourhood, create small neighbourhood groups, and perhaps alternative systems of currency. And if someone's got the energy or the interest or the background in doing that, we're going to need them. We're going to need kind of We're going to need so many different skills, people who've got great communication skills, people who can work with groups, people who can connect others. Like there are so many levels of action that's needed. And also, again, that sort of shift in how we connect, that's going to be really important, how we feel connected, how we do connect. But it seems like localised economies are going to be really important. Getting to know your community is going to be really important. Working at how we can support each other. All of those things. So find what skills you have and then be bold in sharing them.
0: That's beautifully put. I like that.
1: Joanna Macy, you know, she's in it. like I said, she's in her 90s and she's done got an incredible body of work. She's, she's such a guru and yet she's very, very clear she's about saying, you do not. She said this. She said this since I met her when I was in my early twenties, and um, and she's still saying the same things now. It's the bits that are highlighted in bold on her website at the moment. You do not need to wait till you are perfect. You do not need to wait till you have all the answers. You do not need to wait till you've got it all together and you understand everything. Take what you've got now and offer it up in its glorious, imperfect way, and it will be just perfect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I really needed to hear that because I, you know, I'm one of those people that feel like I don't know, I have no idea, and oh, I could be wrong about this, and I don't, I'm not an expert, so I'm going to stay quiet until I become an expert. And, um, and she's very clear we don't have time for that we don't have time just get out there
0: we don't have time for you to be precious just go and do it just go and do it exactly (laughs) she's very good like that (laughs) (laughs) that's great That was Kerry. In many ways, I think she got a better education on the forest blockades than I did at university. As usual, I've got some information and links in the podcast description at saltgrass.podbean.com. So if you're interested in any of the things she was talking about, jump on there and you'll find some good links. As mentioned at the start of the show, I've had feedback from a listener that they missed the recycling segment. It will get harder to do segments like this as the listener base expands to Upway with 3MDR airing the show as well as our listeners from around the world listening to the podcast because so much recycling is specific to what various councils and governments are allowing or facilitating people to do. However, today's episode is pretty universal. So Carla, this one's for you. How the frick are you supposed to recycle that? Today, I want to talk about initiating recycling in your region. Wherever you are in the world, I'd like you to think about what you can do to get some recycling action happening in your area. Here in Castlemaine, we have the local sustainability group, the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, or MASG, where I work. And MASG has been fortunate to have attracted some very dedicated and persistent volunteers over the years. There was one woman called Kate, who volunteered with MASC for quite a few years, and it was her initiative and persistence that saw battery recycling and light globe recycling, mobile phone and printer cartridges and various other recycling streams happen in our town. Now, because of what she started, you can find battery recycling drop off points at lots of places around town, from the council offices to the local hardware store and out in Newstead at the Enviro shop and that is largely because of Kate. More recently, MASG and the local community house and another environment group called The Hub have collaborated to get several streams of TerraCycle recycling happening here. So TerraCycle is a company that accepts some of the more obscure things that won't be accepted by our council household recycling systems. So one of the things that's been introduced is dental products. So you can get your toothpaste tubes and your toothpaste And your toothbrushes and even your dental floss containers recycled and one of the local primary schools is now collecting bottle top lids which can't go into the household recycling and that was initiated by one of the kids who felt very strongly about that so i guess what i'm saying is ask around in your area find out what is already available to recycle and where to do it and how Masg has a list on the website for our local region. So that's masg.org.au. And I have put that link in the podcast description at saltgrass.podbean.com. But also you can talk to your local council or your waste recovery or landfill managers or your local sustainability group to see what is already happening. And then if you see a gap in what is being provided already, you could initiate that. You could be the one to negotiate with TerraCycle and your council or your neighbourhood house or sustainability group to facilitate these services being provided in your area. Do it. It can take time and sometimes you run into brick walls, but if you persist and keep on inquiring and you team up the right organisations, you can just see what is possible. Because it seems to me in this area, at any rate, these things have happened, not because council decided to manage all of it. Most council workers are quite overworked, (laughs) or even because the sustainability group took it on, but because an interested citizen took it upon themselves to ask and keep asking and often put the time and energy to negotiate and organise things, sometimes in partnership with the environment group or with the council, but it was an individual who made that happen. You could be that concerned citizen. As Joanna Macy would say, just go and do it. Now, next week, I'm taking a week off as I have to rewrite a grant to keep this show going. The Community Broadcasting Foundation has very generously funded the first six months of this show and I have reapplied for further funding to keep the show going for another year which I really hope comes through because there's so many more people I'd like to talk to in this area and even further beyond this area. So the CBF or the Community Broadcasting Foundation because of the COVID-19 situation has given everyone a chance to rewrite their grants if all of the restrictions that are in place because of COVID have affected what you were proposing and it definitely has affected what I was proposing. So I need some more time to rewrite that. So anyway, long and short, I'm going to be taking next week off. I'm going to upload an old episode to play on main FM and 3MDR and people listening via podcast. Sorry, but you're going to have to wait a week. So anyway, wish me luck and I will talk to you all again in a fortnight. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you are interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at Saltgrasspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASC. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com.